0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Tracer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back, first-time listeners finding the show, very happy to have you aboard. Really do want to reiterate, as I always do, how much Counterpunch is grateful for your continued support and how much we do depend on your support to keep us going. Counterpunch, like so few publications, is truly independent. It stands apart from the rest and provides the kind of critical left-wing analysis that we do so desperately need, particularly in these times of, well, seemingly uh, insanity with the Trump news cycle and all of the rest of the things we're bombarded with every day. So please do consider becoming a supporter by getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch and get something out of it. You can uh, pick up the phone and call the Counterpunch office. You can do it by donating through the PayPal, however you prefer. So uh, please consider that. All right, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very excited to speak with him. It's somebody whose work I followed for quite a long time and who I really do consider one one of my go-to sources for this sort of information. Boris Kagarlitsky is on the program with me. Uh, Boris is a Marxist theoretician, probably one of the most well-known to us here on the left in the United States. He is the director of the Institute of Globalization and Social Movements. He is also a candidate for Moscow City Council in upcoming elections, which we will talk about. And the website, he is the editor of Robcor.ru. And uh, the books, I would highly recommend Empire to Imperialism the most recent book from a few years ago, as well as Empire of the Periphery. All of that said, Boris Kagarlitsky, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Uh,
1: Hello, Eric. I'm very happy to be with you.
0: It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you on and to uh, help enlighten us about some of the things going on in Russia, particularly from a critical left perspective, because I think so often it is somewhat distorted from, from, from our view. So let's begin by talking about what's going on in Russia today. Um, obviously, the headlines in the United States with regard to Russia tend to be dominated by Trump and Russiagate and Putin and the sort of intrigue around that. And we seem to miss much of the politics that's happening inside of Russia. So catch us up to speed, if you could, on what's going on in Russia, recent demonstrations. What do they tell us about the political situation on the ground?
1: Well, it's really true that uh, Western media is uh, presenting a totally distorted picture of what's happening in Russia. And by the way, I have a feeling that uh, the left is uh, not uh, more competent in that respect uh, compared to the rest of the society. Uh, because yeah it's exactly true it's a kind of very black and white picture and more it's more like a fairy tale picture kind of Disney sort of uh, uh, picture of, of the country which is completely different. Uh, so uh, so the previous year was a kind of watershed because on the one hand of course we had a presidential election which was no surprise and you know we have this joke that uh, stupid Americans, uh, They don't know who is going to be their next president. Uh, Unlike them, we Russians always know that in advance. Uh, But uh, actually, uh, that was probably the last uh, uh, thing which was easy to predict, because immediately after the presidential election, uh, they started, uh, the government started a pension reform, which produced a tremendous uh, outcry of anger. Uh, because uh, Putin promised uh, time and again that uh, pension age was not going to be increased, and that was um, one of the key issues uh, in the government propaganda for years, and then all of a sudden uh, they changed uh, the line. They said that uh, pension reform was necessary and that Uh, Well, uh, you uh, Russians, you tend to live for too long. Uh, Actually it's not so, by the way, because they increased uh, pension age um, to the level of 65, which probably doesn't look um, different uh, compared to the levels you have in the West. But don't forget that uh, the average Russian male uh, lives for 64 years. So, uh, of course, uh, these are average figures still. uh, It uh, gives you an idea uh, of the situation, and that created a tremendous uh, upheaval, and uh, up to 90 percent of the population uh, were against uh, the pension reform. And uh, that produced a very interesting situation, because on the one hand, people were very unhappy, and uh, they were extremely happy when Putin himself. Uh, came forward uh, defending the reform but on the other hand the level of actual protest was weaker than many people expected given the level of discontent so uh, it looked like um, that the government kind of managed to get away with that Uh, but uh, soon after the reform uh, was uh, actually passed we've got the first uh, crowd of uh, local elections, uh, which resulted in uh, people voting against uh, United Russia, which is the pro-government, pro-Putin party, and of course they were voting for their um, official opposition, which is not a real opposition, to be honest, which is more like puppets. But still, uh, you know, there were um, kind of very impressive and visible defeats of their uh, official candidates uh, around the country. And uh, uh, to make things worse for them, uh, we are approaching now the new uh, series of elections uh, in next September, when uh, people are already cautious that uh, one of the few ways to protest effectively against what's going on is uh, to vote out United Russia candidates, so, uh, and the uh, situation became so tense that now, for example, for the upcoming elections, uh, government candidates, they are afraid to announce publicly that they belong uh, to uh, Putin's United Russia party, so they pretend to be independents. But then uh, it, it, it is usually also very visible, because you know that these people who claim to be independents, first of all, you can Google them. And second, usually we have just one independent uh, in every constituency because otherwise uh, people who should vote for the government could be confused But that's the way to identify these people. So that's one layer of events. And the other kind of uh, crisis which is um, uh, developing is uh, with the so-called garbage problem. Because as any uh, modern capitalist society, Russia produces enormous Quantities of garbage, and of course, uh, big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg are leading that trend. And uh, you have to do something with the garbage. And for years, they just did nothing. So they were just um, dropping this uh, garbage on 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 the the fields which were reserved for that. And then, uh, uh, some areas around Moscow ended up having a sort of uh, artificial environmental disaster, which was kind of handmade uh, by, the, by the local government. So uh, it spread around uh, Central Russia. So there were riots and protests all over Central Russia. And then uh, the new idea which uh, Central government and Moscow city government developed was, okay, we should get this garbage further away from Central Russia and they wanted to drop it on Arkhangelsk and other northern regions of European Russia, which also led to another outburst of protests, this time in the north. And uh, just to give you an idea how angry people are, uh, uh, you just should know that Putin had to cancel uh, his planned visit to northern Russia just because of the level of anger, which is so visible and uh, so, uh, so kind of um, hot. Uh, that uh, even presidential administration couldn't guarantee that um, the president could simply go there so they are pulling in tr- some uh, um, Roguardia troops which is like National guard uh, troops uh, to the north of uh, of European Russia in, in order to prevent uh, more riots and protests uh, so the situation is getting really hot and uh, I think the upcoming elections in September can also be very interesting.
0: It's very interesting to hear about the protests, particularly uh, the fact that they're seemingly springing up in some of the more peripheral parts of Russia, not in Moscow and St. Petersburg, which I think really leads to a second question. And that has to do with the, the class dynamic of these protests. What we've seen uh, historically in the recent in the recent past in Russia, primarily protests of, I guess, what we would assume to be upper class liberals in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg around issues issues of press freedom and things like that. So I wonder, is the class character of these protests distinctly different from what we've seen in the past?
2: Uh, There were always different oppositions objectively, even though uh, I'm not speaking about that on the political level, but objectively there were two types of uh, discontent uh, in Russian society. And uh, one of the problems with the movement uh, of uh, 2011, when uh, uh, there were protests against uh, electoral fraud, was that uh, in a certain sense, the movement was almost immediately hijacked uh, by Moscow liberals, as we call them, uh, upper middle class, uh, uh, pro-capitalist liberal guys who uh, reduced uh, their protest to the issues of uh, uh, democratic freedoms, which of course is uh, fine. But uh, you see, the problem with these people is that uh, they are really hated by uh, huge masses of, of Russian society, because people remember. Uh, that these were the very same people. I mean, the political leaders of of uh, of, of this kind of elitist opposition. Uh, these were the very same people who were responsible for uh, robbing the society in the 1990s when uh, they supported privatisation and. Uh, uh dismantling uh welfare state and so on and so on uh, so the very moment when the movement erupted around the whole country and initially in 2011 there were protests all over Russia uh the uh, elitist liberals in Moscow managed to take over and uh, uh, thus uh, they uh, disrupted the process because uh, people were deeply suspicious about uh, that kind of leadership and about that kind of uh, um, that kind of uh, political project if you want because they thought well these people they would continue the very same policies we are happy with they want just to replace uh, the current regime with something not so different And uh, actually, if you follow the events in 2011, it was very interesting that the first outburst of protests was quite considerable around the whole country. But then, within like 10 days, uh, protests uh, started um, slowing down and kind of um, evaporating uh, uh, around the country, and only Moscow remained uh, uh, really hot. Uh, even St. Petersburg actually was um, losing uh, speed, uh, lose, losing steam very, very fast, even though socially the, uh, the composition, social composition of, of St. Petersburg is not very different. So Moscow stayed uh, kind of alone and isolated, and that was the end of the movement. And of course, uh, the left played a, a rather negative role in all this because. Uh, most groups of the left, instead of uh, criticizing uh, liberal opposition, and instead of uh, explaining their differences with the liberal opposition, in order to uh, sustain uh, and keep support of the um, of the social groups which were uh, not uh, on the side of the, uh, of the pro capitalist liberals, uh, most of these leftist groups uh, just claimed. Uh, defending uh, democratic solidarity and thus uh, supported almost anything uh, uh, liberal leaders of the movement did, uh, which also led to very deep mistrust uh, towards the uh, really existing left uh, among those very people who should support it. Uh, So that was the situation in the previous wave of protests. But now the situation is different. Uh, Well, of course, there is a Uh, uh, pro-Western, pro-capitalist liberal opposition as well, uh, including people like uh, Alexei Navalny, who is the darling of of Western media. Uh, But even Navalny himself understands that uh, without some kind of social agenda, uh, these days there is no way you can gain people's support. So even if you're looking at what Navalny says, uh, it's very clear that he, uh, moves to the left, or at least he pretends to move to the left. At least he pretends to, to to be more kind of socially oriented, progressively oriented, and so on. And then you have these spontaneous movements around the country, which have their own leaders locally. And uh, um, finally, we have also this phenomena as um, we see now uh, some um, changes taking place in the official opposition parties. Uh, on the one hand. Uh, there is a very uh, clear and very deep uh, division within the official communist party because the official communist party is very much part of the same system and it's totally integrated and actually the leadership of the party is extremely corrupt Uh, they're just famous uh, for that but uh, at the local level some of the branches are uh, very different and they are really trying to um, to keep fighting Uh, also Some of these branches were quite active in the campaign against uh, the pension reform. Finally, within the uh, Communist Party of Russian Federation, there are some alternative leaders locally who are becoming increasingly prominent. One interesting case is uh, also totally unknown in the West, as far as I remember, uh, which is the case of Irkutsk, where in 2015, uh, people managed to elect an alternative governor, the governor who was not backed by the Kremlin, who was voted into office against the wish, uh, the, the policies of the Kremlin. It's uh, Sergei Levchenko, and uh, he was uh, backed by the, uh, by local uh, communist party, of course. But in itself, Levchenko is a uh, is a politician of his own. So he he uh, is um, an interesting case of a. Uh, of a progressive governor in in Russia, uh, totally isolated. He was the only one who uh, protested against the pension reform, for example, publicly and officially. He did it twice. And uh, because first time he protested and the uh, the media uh, didn't react and the... he didn't manage to get through to the public, so he made another statement again, just insisting. though from the Kremlin uh, they gave him advice not to do it because uh, that makes him really a target of, of, of attacks from attacks from the Kremlin. noki he, he repeatedly re, repeatedly, repeatedly uh, said that he was uh, in total disagreement with the government policies. So we have this. Uh, uh, Levchenka case, which is a, an interesting attempt to create some sort of welfare state in one province only. But don't forget, Irkutsk is 2.5 million people, and uh, and the territory is that of the size of France, Belgium, Holland, Luxembourg, and probably some pieces of Switzerland put together. So, uh, so uh, it's uh, more than just. Um, one small piece of land in the middle of nowhere. Uh, So finally, uh, what we see now is uh, that uh, we have this um, Social Democratic Party, which uh, also is part of the official system. It's called Just Russia, which is now witnessing a sort of rank-and-file rebellion, uh, or maybe it would be rather a rebellion of uh, low- and middle-level party bureaucracy. Which uh, is uh, sick and tired of uh, being just part of the uh, official system and uh, uh, losing support and losing any any credibility because of that. And uh, one of the key uh, deputies uh, in the state Duma, uh, Sir, uh, Alex Shane, Alex Shane uh, from Asterheim, uh he uh, also was uh, central to the campaign against pension reform and it made him uh, very popular. So now, for example, Shane is going to fight for uh, the governorship of uh, Asterhani. And this is another big challenge to the uh, central government because, uh, you know, uh, well, usually they have plenty of ways to prevent uh, unwanted candidates uh, from running. And uh, in uh, 2015, Lev a was just a result of some kind of tactical mistake on the side of the, of the government. I think that they just uh, um, didn't understand how dangerous he was. So they considered him not to be dangerous, so they allowed him running. But now we have Shane and a few other people like him running in different places. And the uh, government, uh, both locally and centrally, has a problem. If they allow them running, they're going to win, or they have very good chances of winning, at least. Uh, Shane definitely will win if if he runs. Uh, And uh, if they don't uh, let people like Shane run, uh, again, uh, it's going to produce a kind of crisis because, uh, uh, again, it will show that uh, the government is... Afraid of, of elections, and that will probably generate a new protests and uh, even rebellions, uh, riots in some places.
0: One interesting thing uh, in in looking at the landscape as you're laying it out, and I'm just want to get your take on it is the institutional obstacles that are put in the way of real political opposition. Uh, again, I, I just to kind of have, um, let's say, uh, a way of cutting through whatever propaganda or misconceptions people might have about the reality of political life in Russia. What's it like to be in an opposition party, especially uh, if you're not, say, one of the two or three officially sanctioned opposition parties? How easy is it to participate in political life, to run for political officer, to mount any kind of a campaign?
2: Well, I think American uh, public may have um, an example which would uh, make it a bit easier to understand Russian politics. It is Mexico in 1970s because, uh, well, very often in the West, they tend to compare current Russian system with the previous Soviet system, which is totally wrong. Uh, first of all, because the Soviet Union was not capitalist, and today we have a capitalist society. And the uh, social composition of society is different. The social composition and the uh, the essence, the, the social nature of the elite, of the ruling class, is completely different. So so in that sense, comparisons with the Soviet past, I think they do not work, and more, they are very misleading. However, you can make this comparison with uh, Mexico, the 17th uh, sorry, uh, with Mexico of, of the 1970s, where they, uh, on the one hand, they had a kind of a one-party system, but on the other hand, they formally allowed opposition, opposition parties, but again, uh, these opposition parties uh, should have been uh, registered properly, uh, um, as they said, con, regi- con registro, and others, which were kind of unwanted, were not registered. Uh, so, once you were not registered, uh, you could continue technically uh, to exist in the sense you could continue technically to organize uh, particular events or publish something, but you were not able to field candidates. Uh, you had problems uh, organizing public rallies uh, outdoors and so on. So, this is exactly the situation in Russia. First of all, uh, uh, it's very hard to organize a public rally uh, outdoors unless you're one of these. Uh, uh, recognized four uh, political parties. Uh, one of them is United Russia, of course, and of uh, course they have no problems organizing rallies or events. Then you have Liberal Democratic Party of Sherinovsky, Then you have the Communist Party of Russian Federation, and finally this Just Russia, Spravedlivaya Sia party. And uh, these are the four parties which uh, have some kind of uh, permit uh, to organize events and uh, even they need to uh, go through a very complicated, and long process. Uh, For example, if you want to organize an event, uh, you have to uh, inform the authorities 10 days in advance, uh, telling uh, them where and when you want uh, to have a a rally or or a march, and then most probably within a few days, you'll get an answer saying, uh, well, you know, uh, this is not the place because for this very time, and for this very uh, uh, place uh, this very place, we planned uh, some kind of sporting competition or uh, or a festival or or, a, or or a summer market or or a winter market or whatever uh, and well, okay, you have the right to protest, but probably you will have some kind of small park. Uh, 10 miles away from the city center uh, with no trams or or, or no public transportation going there. uh, So you're free to to protest there. So that's the the, the normal practice. Uh, However, uh, this year, for example, even uh, May 1st, which was usually uh, the time when at least the official Communist Party and just Russia were free to organize events, uh, this year we had problems that even the official Communist Party had problems uh, getting their events uh, allowed. Uh, of course, not in Moscow, but in some other uh, places in provincial uh, cities and towns. Uh, partly because uh, the, uh, the central government of the administration of, of, of the president, they're becoming deeply suspicious of uh, local branches, even of the Communist Party, uh, because they suspect that people in these branches are not necessarily as corrupt and as. Uh, co-opted as people, as the party, uh, central leadership. And uh, speaking about freedom of speech, you know, I keep telling my Western friends, uh, Russia is a free country, but not a democracy, in the sense that you can publish, you can speak, you can uh, discuss things, especially when you discuss things indoors, uh, you can organize events and so on. So there are no limits, or at least there used to be no limits, because again, now, uh, given the uh, rise the growth of discontent, um, the government seems to become more oppressive, but maybe it will backfire, it will be counterproductive. Because, for example, now they're attempting to establish a system of control over the Internet, because the Internet was completely free. And most people just switched from television, which was controlled, to the Internet. And uh, the number of people watching television, especially watching news on the television, is diminishing uh, year after year after year. And uh, the number of people who get their news from the Internet is increasing also kind of every year or even every month. So now uh, there is so-called Klishas law, uh, after the name of Russian senator Klishas, who introduced the law of... uh, Russian sovereignty over internet, which is basically about Russian government um, having the right to control uh, the internet, but it doesn't mean they really have the technical means to do that. Also, they have this uh, new legislation, uh, which is about punishing people for offending officials. Uh, And uh, any official, including some very minor ones, uh, can um, claim being offended and uh, start uh, a legal process against you if you said something critical of him, and then you can be sentenced to huge fines. Uh, So far we have only one case uh, when they really tried to use this law, but technically they have this legislation. And finally they have this legislation on foreign agents, which they usually uh, have to uh, frighten uh, the NGOs. Uh, for example, we, uh, our institute is uh, registered as an NGO. So uh, just recently, they had a court case against us because we cooperated with German Rosa Luxembourg Foundation. And they um, sentenced us to pay a fine of uh, 300,000 rubles, which is a lot of money, which we, we don't have, actually. Uh, so at this point, uh, when I came to the uh, court, uh, So it was very interesting because I uh, explained our case. Uh, The uh, judge listened, uh, uh, kind of agreed with most of what I said. Then he picked up another file, just a different file, which already had a uh, pre-prepared, pre-written sentence. So this sentence, the, the decision was sent to the court. From the Minister of Justice by email, so it's just, he had simply to read it. So the procedure, the debate, had no meaning because the decision was already sent to them. So he read the uh, the uh, sentence uh, about this fine of three hundred thousand rubles, and then he said, "But uh, there is a way you can avoid paying it because if you don't have this money, you can start a procedure of claiming of being unable to pay, and we will." Uh, discuss that problem, probably you will not have to pay the fine. So it's like everybody understands that this law is uh, is meaningless and it's just a a method of political repression, and even people in the legal system are not very happy with that. Uh, And uh, what we have now is that uh, they introduce more and more repressive legislation which uh, doesn't work. So finally speaking about the left which is not registered, which is not part of the official system, Uh, Again, as I told you, people can register as NGOs, they can register as uh, public organizations without the status of political parties, Uh, and also, uh, well, they organize coalitions, so there are plenty of activities, and for example, I belong to a coalition called Civic Solidarity, which is a coalition of social movements and leftist activists and uh, some intellectuals, and uh, this year, exactly, we um, organized a meeting with the Just Russia people who, who, are, who are very unhappy with, uh, with the current situation. We organized a meeting with Alex Shane from Just Russia Party. And finally, we agreed on forming a coalition. So uh, this time, uh, we are going to run candidates on the list of uh, Just Russia Party, but these will be our candidates. not candidates uh, pre-selected by, uh, by the party. So we are going to, make, and made the selection ourselves. So uh, this changes the situation very much because uh, it allows some of the real progressives to run. It doesn't mean we're going to win, but at least we're going to, to do a, a serious campaign. And by the way, it doesn't mean that we have no chances. We will, of course, have to fight really seriously, and uh, we have plenty of problems, including uh, lacking money, and because uh, the party doesn't give us any money but uh, at least
0: it it's going to be a serious fight. There's interesting that there's a, there's a little opening there and certainly something to follow. Now, before we go to the break, I want to just ask about another aspect of the political opposition in Russia. Just in the last 12 to 18 months, there has been quite a wave of repression that we have seen. I wrote about it in Counterpunch a while ago, and uh, one of your colleagues over there, uh, Reached out to me and, and quite correctly criticized me for having a very limited scope in my coverage because I had written about political repression of leftist uh, activists, both uh, socialists as well as anarchists in Crimea. And in fact, it seems that the wave of repression had been much larger than I even thought when I first wrote about that piece. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the actual repression that we have seen uh, against anarchists and and communist activists in both in the major cities and elsewhere in the country? and where that stands today?
2: Uh, There are spontaneous attempts uh, to intimidate people. And, uh, you know, it is also very typical for today's Russia. You never can explain what is the logic uh, for this particular event here and there, because it's like, well, the the Pienza case, where they repressed anarchists. Uh, There was a group of anarchists who were... uh, uh, Arrested and accused of uh, uh, planning uh, terrorist attacks and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, uh, that was called the the network case. Uh, they, they were accused of trying to form a network which potentially, potentially, uh, could be turned into a terrorist network. So it were, they were not even accused of trying to organize a terrorist network. They were trying. They were accused of trying to organize a network which could be later. Potentially used for terrorist purposes, uh, and so these people are still in jail uh, and uh, uh, they're still waiting trial, which is not happening because uh, this is a very absurd case. But at the same time, there were other people who were uh, arrested or mm, who were uh, called to uh, to to mm, uh, be questioned by their authorities uh, in different. Uh, parts of Russia in relation to the so-called network. And then quite a few of them got released. So it's very much like a decision made by some local uh, police or local uh, FSB authorities on the grounds which are not very clear why some people uh, get uh, jailed and other people for the very, with the very same status, accused of the very same things. or accused of being involved in this very same organization, they just go away. Uh, So I think it's uh, a situation when much depends on the uh, will of uh, particular uh, people in their oppressive operators uh, to kind of show their effort or uh, to to defy the system. Or uh, sometimes uh, maybe it depends on the A local balance of forces within the repressive apparatus or within the government apparatus at the local level. Uh, Of course, there were also other cases, and uh, mm, well, uh, again, on the one hand, yes, you can say that there was a wave of repression. On the other hand, you cannot say that there is some kind of systematic repression uh, against. Uh, leftist or political opposition. Of course, there were also repressions against uh, Navalny supporters. Uh, but again, uh, in, in one uh, city, it's, uh, it's a real serious repression, in another city, nothing really happened. Uh, the same thing with uh, the NGOs like people sometimes get fines, like we we got it, uh, and sometimes they go away with it. And uh, uh, it's totally uh, without logic. Uh, you can never predict. Uh, But this is part of today's Russian life, actually. It it often lacks logic.
0: Absolutely. And, of course, anything in relation to agitation around Crimea and the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine is, of course, I think, (laughs) going to be under a special microscope as compared to perhaps activism around some other issues in other parts of the country.
2: Sure, it's absolutely true. Uh, Though, of course, the the case of... uh, uh, Ukrainian war is a very special case because, uh, actually, as in, if we follow the case of repression, we also know that uh, quite a few people who were involved in uh, the Nef rebellion and who were active supporters of the Nef rebellion were also repressed. Uh some people supported the were
0: Let's 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 come back to that on the other side of the break. I want to take a quick break and when we return, I want to talk about some of the developments in Ukraine, including the recent elections and what that means for uh both for Ukraine and, and particularly the ongoing conflict, as well as the situation of Russia's economic uh situation and Russia's position in the world vis-a-vis the United States and some other conflicts. A lot more to discuss with Boris Kagarlitsky, You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
3: You're asking what is socialism and what it really means. It's equal rights for every man, regardless of his strength. So don't let no one fool you. Listen as I tell you, Joshua said No man no better than none Socialism is love between man and man Socialism is love for your brother Socialism is linking hearts and ends Would you believe it? Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sister Socialism is people Mr. Bigger trembling in his shoes Saying he's got a lot to lose Don't want to hear about suffer at all Joshua said One man have too many while too many have too little Socialism don't stand for that Don't stand for that at all Socialism is love for your brothers Socialism is linking hearts and ends Poverty and hunger is what we're fighting Socialism is sharing with your sisters Socialism is people pulling together Would you believe me? Love and togetherness That's what it means
0: And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Boris Kagarliski again. The website, you can follow a lot of these developments and these perspectives, Robcor.ru. I again recommend that, rabko ru. I think we all know how to use the translate feature if necessary and, uh, you know, be able to follow along with the analysis there. So uh, before the break, we started talking a little bit about Ukraine and some of the uh, activism around Crimea and elsewhere. But I think one of the major stories that I'd like to get your analysis on here is the recent election, the uh, election of a new president there, Zelensky. Who is he? What does this election mean for the ongoing situation in the eastern part of Ukraine and for Russia and Russians broadly?
2: Well, I think that uh, Zelensky election, uh, the victory in Ukraine is a turning point in many ways. And of course, looking at that from a leftist perspective. Uh, you should be um, kind of very careful because we should avoid uh, two extremes. On the one hand, uh, there is sometimes a tendency, especially among the hard left, so to speak, to say, "Well, it, it doesn't matter; uh, they're all the same." It doesn't mean that uh, Zelensky is any different from his predecessors. And at the same time, uh, on the liberal left, so to speak, there is some. Um, enthusiasm saying, well, now everything is going to be uh, different, Uh, Zelensky is uh, the real real democratic uh, leader who will finally uh, change the situation positively, and so on. So I think the situation is more uh, contradictory and more uh, uh, complicated, because on the one hand, I think that Zelensky is quite honest in his uh, determination to end the war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, he is himself uh, from Eastern Ukraine, and he is not part of the political elite. He was elected exactly because of not being part of the political elite. And more, uh, it is very important, uh, he was elected because he was very popular as an actor, playing a role of, uh, uh, of some kind of people's president uh, in a film called uh, People, uh, The S- Servant of the People, um, Sluga Naroda. Uh, where uh, this character, uh, Goloborotsky, a uh, former history teacher, which is very important, history teacher, uh, becomes suddenly uh, a president of, of Ukraine, and uh, actually leads Ukraine to some kind of uh, dramatic reform. So it's a very interesting movie, because on the one hand, it's a comedy, and sometimes it's really funny. It's about corruption. It's about bureaucracy. It's uh, a bit like some of the good British um, comedies about politics, like uh, The Thick of It, for example, and, and Yes, uh, Prime Minister, and so on. Uh, on the other hand, it was a kind of Ukrainian version of House of Cards, uh, so a um, very strange mixture of both. And uh, uh, the third season, which was the final season, was a sort of utopia presenting a, a kind of, vision of Ukraine, which should be uh, created, Uh, clearly, it was part of the campaign of Zelensky. So this vision of an alternative history of Ukraine, uh, which would be a democratic society, open to everyone, with no conflicts between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, with uh, linguistic equality and, and so on and so on. So in that sense, I think Zelensky is quite serious uh in in two things at least first he wants to end the war in the east and uh, i mean to end it seriously to really stop hostilities, to stop shelling and fighting and, and shooting uh and uh, second i think he's very serious in terms of uh, actually uh making uh, the cultural opening towards russian language and not necessarily making Russian language equal to Ukrainian language, but at least uh, increasing its status. He himself confessed that he didn't know Ukrainian language prior to the elections, Uh, so he seems to be now learning Ukrainian language, but definitely already made a statement uh, actually defending the status of Russian language. And, of course, he will probably be seriously trying uh, to um, do something about corruption. Whether it will succeed or not, it's a different question. Uh, And how strong is his determination is also a different question, because we also know that Zelensky has uh, a long-term relationship uh, to one of the uh, oligarchs in Ukraine, which is Igor Kalamoysky, a Jewish oligarch who is now in Israel, uh, who actually was uh, defeated in their inter-oligarchic struggles Uh, within Kyiv, so he had to leave the country, and he lost some of his property to other oligarchs, actually, uh, and to Poroshenko clan, to the clan of uh, previous president. So uh, we know that uh, Kolomoisky was very much in favor of Zelensky candidate and uh, supposedly gave him some money to run. Uh, So in that sense, when a person so close to Kolomoisky speaks about uh, the need to fight against corruption... uh, I don't want to say I have doubts, I have problems, because maybe the left would be quite honest in in his attempts to fight against corruption. But then, would he be strong enough to fight against his own uh, former friends and sponsors? Um, Well, this is at least open to doubt. Uh, Sure.
0: one, One can imagine it would be very easy to fight the corruption of the enemies of the oligarch that sponsors you.
2: Exactly, that's exactly the point. You can be very good at uh, kind of revealing and um, kind of fighting back corruption of the, of, of the enemy oligarchs, but what about your own friends? Uh, though he was, was asked whether he was going to jail Kolomols- Kolomoisky uh, if, uh, if needed, and he said, if Kolomoisky really broke the law, yes. But it is very kind of uh, unclear. What do you mean by if? If what? What's the meaning of this if? Uh, but I think there is a problem even deeper than that, because again, if you examine uh, his uh, uh, his previous uh, uh, his previous films and uh, sketches, because he also did a lot of sketches. Uh, you know, uh, you can, for, for example, you can even have some sketches where he had, uh, where he mocks Kalamoysky, for, for example. Uh, but one point which is very clear that these people, uh, both uh, Zelensky and uh, those who write uh, these sketches for him, uh, the famous Shafir brothers, uh, they have a very clear idea that the only economy. Which can exist is not only a, a capitalist economy but a new liberal capitalist economy, so in that sense, I mean it's uh, outside of their imagination they cannot even imagine any economy except the current kind of economy except the, the, the new liberal capitalist model. so they, uh, I have a feeling they cannot even imagine that social democracy could exist uh, in, in their world, you know. Uh, so so they're, they're totally lacking any reformist economic and social imagination, even though they speak about social justice and they speak about, uh, about the need to provide welfare for all and so on. But at the very same time, when they're speaking about economic rules, about the, the way economy should be organized, it's just the, the, the most stupid economics textbook which they are repeating. And then there is another question. Oh, on the one hand, you say, well, we want uh, uh, free education, uh, whatever, all, all these good things. We they, they, they want uh, to eradicate poverty, blah, blah, blah. And maybe even they're honest saying that. But then uh, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to increase competition within the economy. Wait a minute. It's not going
0: to work this way. Right, exactly. So one of the other things about uh, Ukraine and and, and many of these issues that I want to get your comment on, those of us on the left in in the United States and in the West especially have this kind of unique experience, I think, of watching a a sort of Kremlin cultivated echo chamber within the alternative media that's, you know, flagship is RT and Sputnik, but many other, uh, you know, sort of websites that seem to be kind of towing those same talking points. And you've seen over the last five, six years, the sort of uh, um, image of Ukraine is essentially a neo-Nazi state run by, you know, fascists who are just dead set on some kind of genocide against Russian speakers and so forth. And the reality, of course, is much more complex. And it's it's not the sort of caricature that uh, Russian media has sort of portrayed. And I think that uh, this recent election, the election of Zelensky, a Jewish uh, comedian who represents, you know, and I think quite transparently, Jewish uh interests, Jewish oligarchic interests, and him being elected with the numbers that he was elected does seem to dispel some of the mythology of Ukraine as being some kind of a Nazi criminal state. Uh, So I want to get your comment on this sort of the the rise or maybe the resurrection of far-right politics in Ukraine and also kind of this idea that's been pushed by Russian media of Ukraine as sort of a Nazi state.
2: Well, uh, again, you are exactly right that the image is uh, totally simplistic. Uh, the way Western media portrays Russia as a kind of, uh, uh, well, uh, I don't know, fairy tale uh, evil empire. Uh, also, the way Russian media portrays, uh, presents Ukraine as a Nazi state is, is wrong. However, first, of course, uh, there is a very strong far right in Ukraine. And it was much stronger uh, about 2014. So the far right movements so and the far right politicians were influential, partly because they were encouraged by the uh, more uh, so-called moderate uh, sections of, of the Ukrainian elite, which used uh, these uh, far right sections actually to uh, to be um, their their uh, fighting tool against uh, social protest against. Uh, Uh, dissent, uh, discontent in the country, and so on. Uh, Well, actually, in many cases, as we know, the history of fascism, that was exactly how fascist uh, movements, which later came uh, to power, actually started. Uh, I don't think that uh, in Germany or or early in Italy, uh, everybody who encouraged uh, initially uh, Mussolini and uh, Hitler uh, uh, could uh, predict, uh, could uh, Foresee the the outcomes, so they initially used fascist uh, gangs as a tool against uh, labor movement and, and so on. So they uh, tried to manipulate these gangs, that they tried to control them, and it didn't work out. And by the way, uh, if we uh, if we look at the uh, at the history of, uh, of uh, the recent history of Ukrainian politics, we should know that it was exactly uh, Igor Kolomoysky, uh, this Jewish oligarch who spent quite a lot of money on uh, some of the far-right groups. Um, Well, it was just his kind of cynical uh, calculation. He thought that he would be able to control uh, that, you know. But riding a tiger is not a very a uh, very easy job, actually. And, and again, uh, just
0: listeners, just as a reminder, Pravi Sector, the Svoboda Party, a lot of the different factions that we're talking about that were instrumental in Maidan, many of those have kind of uh, migrated to one or the other oligarch for money and, and so forth, and that sort of has evolved from there.
2: Absolutely. that's That's exactly the case. They use these people for Maidan. They use these people to intimidate Uh, not only Russian speakers, but it's very important to understand they use them to intimidate workers and uh, labor movement. And don't forget that most of workers are Russian-speaking workers. So most of the industrial base is in the Russian-speaking region. So very often what is presented both in the West and sometimes inside Russia and inside Ukraine as a conflict between Russian speakers and and Ukrainian speakers. In reality, is a a, a way to kind of misinterpret Uh, repression or an attack on the labor movement, which consisted of, of Russian speakers, mostly. Uh, And which was much stronger in Eastern Russian-speaking areas, uh, Russian-speaking parts of the country. Well,
0: and isn't it uh, also a question, I'm just, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just want to ask, isn't it also a question of uh, ties to the former remnants of the Soviet Communist Party? I mean, it was those areas where the working class was still tied to the sort of the old political patronage networks rather than those, say, loyal to the machine in Kiev. It seems that was one of the other major divides there.
2: Uh, that's also true, though I think it was not the major thing already by 2014. It was more important in the previous phase of Ukrainian politics, I think like before 2004, this was quite essential, uh, but less so in 2014. But what we saw later after the 2014 was a very interesting development because uh, Ukrainian society Changing. So, Ukrainian society today is not the same as it used to be, say, by 2014 or 2015. Uh, recent opinion polls show a very interesting tendency that uh, Ukrainians uh, tend to have a more positive view of Russia and Russians, uh, increasingly more positive view of Russia and Russians, uh, though uh, it doesn't mean that they have a positive view of Putin. Uh, so, uh, the attempt to turn uh, this conflict and to a wave of uh, russophobic anger at the grassroots level actually not only failed but backfired and created a different a trend that people keep uh, uh, thinking that, well, uh, being against uh, Putin or being against current Russian government doesn't mean they're against Russia, or even that they are against Russian state. Uh, it means uh, they increasingly differentiate between the state and the government in Russia. So it's very interesting that uh, the opinion uh, of Ukrainians about Russia uh, became positive for 67% as far as they remember Ukrainians. While in Russia, the situation is different. Unfortunately, uh, till uh, the election of Zelensky, uh, the propaganda image of Ukraine did work, so uh, partly because there were elements of truth in this propaganda story. Uh, So it did work, and uh, most Russians had a very negative opinion of Ukrainians. And then uh, the election happened, and then uh, all of a sudden the Russian population in Russia uh, discovered that 70% of Ukrainians elected a Russian-speaking guy who uh, Presenting himself as a Russian speaker, it's very important. It's not only that he actually is Russian-speaking. Every Ukrainian politician, in reality, is Russian-speaking. Poroshenko is Russian-speaking, and Timoshenko is not even Ukrainian by origin. Timoshenko, this woman who was uh, uh, the third uh, uh, the third uh, runner, uh, the third, who had the third position in the race after Poroshenko and Zelensky uh she uh she's not even ethnically ukrainian so so the point is not uh, that Zelensky act ob- objectively was uh, a russian speaker the important point here is that Zelensky uh presented himself as a russian speaker that was his image he created an image of of, of a russian speaker who uh who didn't know ukrainian language and so on and so on. so um though of course in reality, in, in practice, I, I think he knows a bit of, of the language, but he made these statements saying, well, I don't know the, the official language. And um, that changes uh, the attitude in Russia. And uh, now uh, Ukraine is becoming increasingly popular with the Russian population uh, inside Russia. And uh, uh, that also makes uh, Putin and his entourage, especially, I think, uh, his, um political manipulators in the administration, uh, very worried. Uh, And look, uh, it seems that people uh, in the political elite are worried on both sides, especially uh, with the perspective of uh, Zelensky really doing something to end the war. Uh, Because even before Zelensky's inauguration, first thing, we've got this terrible law on language in Ukraine, which was voted by the rather by the parliament, uh, still controlled by the the existing parties of the previous regime and controlled by the right and the far right and the linguistic law, the law on Ukrainian language is is really like a a third right kind of legislation, which actually prohibits people just technically using Russian language. Like like if you uh, go to a shop and you ask, a shop assistant uh, in Russian about some, I don't know, some stuff you're going to buy, and shop assistant uh, responds to you in Russian, and then you have to, both of you have to pay a fine. And the fine is like uh, uh, two or three average salaries, uh, Massive salaries, you know, it, it, it's incredible. It's, I don't think it's going to be implemented. By the way, technically, it's impossible, but it's just the way to provoke uh, people and uh, to scare them, but mostly to create problems for Zelensky himself with his policy, especially to prevent uh, the, the president from speaking because he uh, speaks Russian. And uh, the very same day, or the second, uh, the, or the day after, Moscow announced that it was going to give you know, Russian passports to people in Donetsk. And look, people in Donetsk were asking for, uh, the, for the right to get Russian passports for five years. They were denied that year after year after year. And then all of a sudden, when there was finally a perspective for a peace settlement, then suddenly the uh, Russian government decided to change its position to start giving them passports. Again, that's a way to provoke the Ukrainian side, like saying, look, uh, well, we are not going to compromise. We we want these territories to be taken away from Ukraine, and uh, I think that uh, Zelensky's position was very balanced. His reaction was very balanced because uh, he didn't make any very, any strong statement against Russia's decision, just uh, saying, okay, maybe there are certain people who want Russian passports. Okay, if they want, okay, let them have Russian passports, period. Uh, And, uh, well, okay, but most people will probably not take Russian passports, I hope. And by the way, uh, he didn't say that publicly, but everybody knows, yeah, they will probably take Russian passports, but they will not give away Ukrainian passports. They will just have two passports. But. Uh, Well, he made a much stronger statement against uh, the linguistic law. And uh, then he made another interesting statement uh, because at Easter uh, he congratulated Ukrainians with uh, Orthodox Easter, which is also a bit funny because he himself is a Jew. But anyhow, he congratulated his uh, Ukrainian um, people. Uh, with Orthodox Easter in two languages. So just um, turning that into a kind of open challenge uh, to the law, uh, which he did exactly what the law prohibited. Uh, The law is uh, not implementable, as I said, but it is very clear that the the incoming president, because he's not yet inaugurated, but anyhow the the president-elect defied uh, the law uh, uh publicly and and immediately making the statement in in two languages
0: Indeed. And that law has, of course, had many ripple effects. And of course, it wasn't just about languages. There was also the law to outlaw all Communist Party symbols and symbols of the communist past, which, of course, uh, touches on very emotionally charged issues, including the legacy of the Great War, the World War II, the Great Patriotic War. Uh, And for many of us in the West who are of Jewish descent, particularly those who come from the former Soviet Union, it also touches on our own histories. My grandfather, Father was a uh, Soviet uh, airman who was a medal winner in the defense of Ukraine and in in, in many other battles as well. I have family buried in mass graves at Babi Yar, etc. So when this all was happening in 2014, many of us in the United States and elsewhere reacted uh, with that sort of historical memory as well. And I think oftentimes we have to balance our historical understanding of these issues with a say misunderstanding or maybe a distorted understanding of the new of the politics there today?
2: Well, uh, Ukraine is a country which is full of contradictions. And uh, we should not forget about uh, the real presence of the far right in Ukrainian politics. And we should think that probably they will challenge Zelensky and more. I'm sure that uh, these uh, neo-Nazi gangs will be used uh, against uh, Zelensky if he really tries to do anything progressive. It's 100% guaranteed that uh, the, the, the far right is is, is a real threat uh, in Ukraine. And they, even though they, they suffered a tremendous defeat recently, uh, partly also because it became very clear that most Ukrainians don't agree with them. Most Ukrainians don't agree with the uh, with them trying to present Nazi collaborators as heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, But still, still, uh, these forces are present in Ukrainian politics, and they will try to come back, and they will try to fight back, and they're really dangerous.
0: Absolutely right. Well, in the time that we have remaining, since I don't want to keep you too much over the time here, I want to ask you about Russia's uh, foreign policy and how that relates to some domestic concerns, because, of course, Russia has kind of reestablished itself on the global scene, especially in Syria. I think it's probably self-evident uh, how how that's the case. Uh, certainly, the way that that conflict has evolved has kind of catapulted uh, Russia to prominence in the Middle East. Obviously, Russia has some diplomatic uh, stake in what's going on in Venezuela and elsewhere right now that's in the headlines. And so um, I, I want to just ask you, on the one hand, it seems that Russia is kind of reemerging on the global scene. That's certainly what Putin wants to, that, that's the image that Putin wants to project. But on the other hand, we've seen some somewhat troubling economic indicators, especially within Russia. So I'm curious uh, how it's being viewed domestically in terms of the uh, the, the the opinion polls and and other things, and how this is translating economically, because between the sanctions, the dip in global oil prices, all of these things that are putting negative pressure on Russia's economy, how does Putin justify the expenditures in Syria, Ukraine, and elsewhere?
2: Uh, The only real success of Russian foreign policy, uh, which was popular inside the country, was the reincorporation of Crimea. And uh, in the West, it is sometimes interpreted in the context of uh, Russian imperialism or Russian nationalism. Uh, But, uh, well, don't forget that, first of all, and it is really true that uh, Crimean population wanted uh, to be part of Russia. And they insisted a few times on having a referendum. This referendum was always denied uh, by uh, different Ukrainian governments and finally after russian troops uh, actually took over the referendum happened and by the way i suspect that if a referendum happened under different circumstances the outcome would be somewhat different but not that different probably it wouldn't be say 90% in favor of their reintegr- or of reintegration of of Crimea into Russia, but probably it would be 65 or or 70%. Still, it would be an overwhelming majority. Uh, and then uh, with Syria or Venezuela or uh, Central Africa, the situation is different because uh, most of the population see that as a waste of resources. Uh, also, we know that Russian government uses mercenaries both in Syria and in uh, Central Asia, Central Africa sorry, Uh, fortunately not in Central Asia by the way but Central Asia is a different story Uh, well anyhow so uh, uh, these uh, efforts of uh, Moscow to expand its influence over these countries uh, they're not seen so positively by the public opinion inside uh, Russia itself because uh, the country is suffering from The lack of uh, funding uh, for healthcare uh, infrastructure. Um, It it suffers from uh, not from the lack of funding uh, for education, but from a terrible educational reform, which makes almost any funding inefficient because it's it's a combination of incredible bureaucratization with. uh, aggressive, you know, it's a a very strange combination of bureaucracy and free market, which actually destroys the educational system. It's like uh, the worst of both worlds. Uh, So uh, uh, people are very unhappy with with money going to Venezuela, with money going to to Syria, and so on. Uh, And don't forget that uh, it's uh, Already the fifth year uh, uh, in, in, in a row uh, when uh, uh, living standards are decreasing. So people uh, get worse off year after year after year. After five years of uh, economic troubles, people are angry. and they, uh, That's why, by the way, the pension reform made people so angry, because according to the Russian pension system, uh, you could have your pension and keep working. So uh, this pension was absolutely necessary for quite a few households uh, who were yes working but uh, they needed some additional money. Uh, by the way, among other things, to to keep themselves at work. Uh, and uh, so um, at this stage, uh, foreign policy is uh, not getting a very high uh, score, uh, kind of in the public opinion. And. Uh, just a telling uh, thing that uh, is that uh, traditionally in Russia, of course uh, foreign policy gets more support any, in, with any government. it gets more support uh, in terms of foreign policy than uh, in domestic uh, policy it 's the same trend in many years, and even now, of course, the support for Russian foreign policy uh, is much higher than the support for its, uh, for the government 's domestic policies however. Uh, it is diminishing very fast, and uh, for the first time uh, for many years, the number of those people who support government foreign policy is below 50%. Uh, the recent poll, which I've seen uh, a few weeks ago, has shown 45% of support uh, for the foreign policy, with uh, 35% uh, being uh, negative, and, while well, the rest undecided. It's still quite a lot, but it shows that uh, the number of supporters is uh, diminishing and it's diminishing fast. So, a few people, a few commentators said it's probably the last point uh, which shows that uh, the situation is uh, coming to some dramatic change because, uh, well, up to now, up to very recently, even when people were discontent, uh, unhappy with with, uh, some decisions, at least they said, okay, yes, but. Uh, Putin made Russia great again, Uh, but it's not the case anymore."
0: I have to ask you in in just the last minute or two that we have here, I have to ask you from the Russian perspective, what do people in Russia say about Russia gate, quote unquote, and Donald Trump and everything that uh, has surrounded this melodrama? Because this is something that our media class, the you know, sort of the bourgeois corporate media here has been consuming and, and, and feeding to us every single day, nonstop. And what how do people read it in Russia? How does the left view it in Russia? What's the, what's the analysis from the Russian perspective? I mean, because, I don't know, at least to me, it feels like everyone in the world should rightly be laughing about uh, the well, exactly. American discourse. But uh, the actually Russia,
2: yeah. Russia's laugh at that. Russians laugh at that. And often people say, well, we'd love to have that much influence on American politics, but it's absurd uh it's a crazy thing it's uh uh even even if uh, there were some attempts to influence american uh electoral process uh the whole story is so much exaggerated and so much in turned into some kind of fairy tale uh that it's uh it's only a matter of laughter and it's a matter of irony and i think no one in russia takes it seriously i mean um of course people say sometimes well Uh, At least, at least Americans remember that we exist, Uh, but that's the most most positive thing Russians can say about this story.
0: Sure, and I think a lot of Russians can think back to a number of elections the U.S. got its hands involved in in Russia. Well, uh,
2: that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. American uh, diplomats and American uh, political manipulators just were well-known of uh, influencing elections all over the world, uh, uh, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa. They, they didn't hide that. And then all of a sudden they started shouting, wow, Russians are trying to influence our elections. Wait a minute. Uh, you have just to uh, consider what you yourself Have done uh, around the world for so many years. So it's like a boomerang uh, flying back. But unfortunately, maybe it's not true. Russians did not uh, have capacity to influence American elections.
0: Much, much more to say about that, but we'll have to leave it there. Again, uh, Boris Kagarlitsky, the website, robkor.ru, rabko ru. Go there to find all of the work, Uh, the books, Empire to Imperialism, a must read, and uh, the earlier book, Empire of the Periphery, too, I would recommend very highly. Boris Kagarlitsky, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, Eric. And listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.